Hi, Eric. Hi, Aaron. How are you? I was a missionary in, between 1997 and 1999 for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yes. In Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro. Um, and it was awesome. Good. That's uh, The podcast, Face and Hat, is not primarily designed to be missionary work. Let's no, make that is, up front it's, it's very clear. Not, it's, it's not, shall we say, primarily proselytory in nature. That's right. <laughs> well, um, but today we will be talking about missionary work yes. in the church. I was also a missionary. Um, I finished my mission in 1997, however, rather than beginning it, because yep. I am old. <laughs> and I served in uh, Korea in the Busan mission. In the Husan mission. So yeah. what, um, let's see, I have been to Korea. You have, that's why you've uh -huh. been to Korea much more recently than I have. Yeah, I was in Pohang at the X-ray free electron laser facility in Pohang, which is on the east coast of Korea. So it's quite yeah. a long train ride from uh, Seoul. Yeah, I'm trying to remember where Pohang is. I remember the city name. Uh, it's not up by the border, right? It's further south than that. I don't think it was in my mission. Yeah, it was further, it's further south than the border. Um, it was great. Well, I had I had a culinary failure while I was there. Oh, it's in the Tegu region. Oh, oh no, that wasn't my mission. That wasn't. Ah. My, it's one of the cities I never visited, but it wasn't my mission. I ordered a bunch of fish and couldn't eat it because it was too scary. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I I was pretty good about eating what was put in front of me. Um, but what I could not eat was one time I was served um our charcuterie plate, which included raw cow liver and raw cow tongue. And, and that was a bridge too far for me. <laughs> I could not eat that. So I got served, um, uh, not, not liver or tongue, but tripe while I was on my mission. Right. Oh, tripe. Yeah. Yep. And I'm pretty yeah. sure it was, for, it was revenge. <laughs> he had this guy that was serving me. Great guy. For some reason though, he was employing a maid. Now I was in Rio and I'm pretty sure that people didn't have money for this kind of thing, but this guy apparently did. And she was mad at him. Mm -hmm. And I think that she served us all tripe because she was mad at him. <laughs> it was not good. <laughs> Just straight tripe, huh? But listen, missions are full of stories like this. Oh my crazy, goodness, tough stories, yes. Crazy stuff, crazy yeah. stuff happens on missions. Mechanisms. Yeah. We were 19, 19 years old, 20 years old, right? We were just kids. Yeah, I, I look back at it. I still can't believe I did it. I was there for two years, living essentially on my own with somebody yeah. else. With some other schmuck. Yeah. Um, I think it's at least worth describing it a bit for our um, lovely and generous non-Mormon listeners, <laughs> um, because it was so interesting, right? You go down there and you live in an apartment and you're given a certain amount of money a month and you get checked in on sometimes, like not very often. It was, we were pretty autonomous, really. Yeah. And then you just worked for how many hours a week do you think you worked? Oh, a lot. A lot, right? So many hours. Six, six days a week um, for 12 hours a day? And then one yeah, day off. That's probably safe. And even on the day off, well, you work the evening. Half a day off. Yeah. Yeah. And and, that, it, is... and that day was you know doing laundry. It wasn't um, take yeah. That. Although I was able to do a few um, sightseeing things and visit some cultural sites on that day, but yeah, largely yeah. 
I got to go down to Pau de Azúcar and see the Cristo Redentor statue, the famous one from Rio. I got to do some great stuff, but most of the time I was working. Yeah. And working involved um, some service. Like when I describe my mission to um, like people at work, right? You know, I'll oftentimes I'll mention some service opportunities that I did, right? Because people are interested in in that, right? But in reality, I mean, most of the time I was proselytizing just knocking doors, teaching lessons. And uh, I was in Brazil and uh, I taught a lot of lessons because of that. <laughs> yes, I was in Korea and I did not. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and my brother, bless his heart, served in, served in uh, Europe, right? Oh, the, you know, the saying goes like uh, for every door in Europe that was knocked on, someone taught a lesson in Brazil, right? Or someone got baptized in Brazil. I haven't heard that particular expression, but it does, ex- <laughs> it does express the sentiment that I had heard before. <laughs> I'd heard that um, one, one that one that I heard on my mission was people in South America get baptisms, people in Europe learn a language, and people in Asia learn humility. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like it, right? <laughs> yeah. So we got um, we got sent to these places. We were there for two years, learned a lot about what it's like to be a person. You know, it, I had a lot of good experiences that taught me about humanity right and i had a lot of nice um spiritual experiences and um it was a lot of hard and i overheated on several occasions because it was really hot in brazil sure but wouldn't trade it for anything but man is it a weird system right yeah there's there's an expression i'm sure we both heard that if the church weren't true, the missionaries would have destroyed it a long time ago. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> yeah, some got, some of them got in lots of trouble, right? <laughs> I, I, um, I heard of many, on many occasions, about um, missionaries that were sent home because of lots of different reasons. There are missions that were shut down, right? Missions that reopened sure. later. I've definitely heard some stories. And we're going to talk about some of those stories today. Yeah, we are. Um, mostly stories that predate us, but I'm sure that we will have some anecdotes to uh, bring it a little bit closer to the present day. Maybe we should state a thesis statement. Oh, oh boy, you, you've, uh, you've done your homework. My, no, I don't have a thesis statement. My thesis statement for this episode is, man, missionary work is kind of a weird program, and nobody really knows how to do it well. <laughs> it is a mystery. It is a strange and curious thing, and um, since it's the Lord's work, you know, you do the work, but whether or not it works is not your work. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, so I have to say, when I sat down to read our chapter today, again, we're reading David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism. This is chapter 10, the missionary program. I wasn't expecting to be like gripped right? To be, really, <laughs> to be really into it or anything. I was like, okay, well, this will be fun. He probably did some things about missionary work. You know, we'll probably learn a few things, but I was astonished. And the more I kept reading this chapter, it just, I go, I was compelled to keep going and I couldn't hardly believe the stories and the thing I was reading. Some absolute nonsense happened <laughs> between the years of 1958 and 1962 in the church in yes. Great Britain and in, um, Central uh, or, uh, or or the European missions, right? That's and right. Um, it's really really wild. And 
I was able to draw a direct line from these stories, right, to my mission. I saw the consequences reverberate in everything that I um, did as a missionary in ways that I had never even considered, right? Looking back at it 20 years later, I can see things that happened on my mission that, and I can now trace back to the 50s and 60s to see why. Yes. In the fact, there are some stories I heard on my mission. Now, one, one thing about missionaries, uh, it's kind of like, so I work at a high school now. And one thing that is very true of a high school is there's not much institutional memory among the students. There's also not much institutional memory among admin because they tend to turn over too. All the institutional memory is with, with um, teachers, the janitorial staff. Um, most people at the school, which is the students, the vast bulk of people at the school are students, don't know what happened in the recent past, right? Like within four years, it's a complete turnover and they forget everything. With missionaries, it's within two years. And if you're talking about a specific area, it's maybe six months um, that the turnover happens. And yeah, you know, missionaries keep records, sort of, and so forth. But um, we really don't remember what happened. There's one of the stories that we'll be talking about today. I heard that story as if it had happened in my mission. Mm -hmm. um, and I was shocked that, it that such a thing could have happened in my mission. I'm now very skeptical that it happened in my mission because it happened in, uh, I think it was Wales, you know, 50 years prior. Um, well, I guess it wasn't 50 years ago then, it's 50 years ago now. Um, it's, but it's, it was a legend that percolated all the way to Korea decades later, even though I'm sure it didn't actually happen in Korea. So. Yeah. Yeah, the, the things we're going to talk about today have a big effect below the surface, before the, below the conscious level of what missionaries know, it still had an effect on us because it's like this prim, primeval knowledge that's percolating up from our caveman ancestors sort of thing, only within missionaryism. So David O. McKay um, became, an, uh, became the president of the church, right? But he had already had quite a bit of experience in the missionary program, right? Yeah, he did a mission in Scotland in 1897, right? Mm -hmm. Which just put put things in perspective is when he became, you know, we're going to be mainly talking about the fifth, the late 50s, early 60s, right? That was a long time before. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. He toured the foreign missions in between in the 20s, right? And he presided over the European mission in the mid 20s, um, and then he made missionary work a central theme. Again, we're looking at just looking at the book again, right? And then when he became president of the church, some things things started happening around him that he wasn't actually very aware of what well, was happening. That's one thing you really realize reading this book is how big the church is. And we're talking 60 years ago, how big the yeah. church was. Um, it's impossible for any one person to take, take control of. Um, yeah, yeah, and that is part of what happens with the missionaries. So, it's really true. Um, and immediate, what I was, one of the things I noticed about this chapter is that David O. McKay himself doesn't feature very highly in it. Well, it's, it's like <laughs> that old expression, um, Aaron, if, if the church weren't true, the prophets and apostles and bureaucrats would have destroyed it a long time ago. <laughs> that seems like an adaption of another quote. <laughs> Um, all right, so the chapter focuses on three men. Let's introduce them. Let's do it. 
Okay, the first man was Henry D. Moyle. Okay, um, he was an attorney. He was an oil entrepreneur. He joined the first presidency in 1959, and he was put in charge over the whole missionary program. Okay, so I have a I have a quote, and I want to read that descri that described him. So this is from his daughter. So his daughter was relating a story about his daddy, right? He said that daddy, this other missionary said that daddy came in and in two days he had contacted all the newspaper, newspaper reporters and they called meetings and they got these big write-ups in the paper and all the missionaries had to hustle to get information and get notices out. He said it was a cyclone had hit them, right? So this is describing his work as uh, in the missionary program. So he had this force of personality, right? Yes, charisma. Okay. Of charisma, exactly. And, okay, the next man. So here, so, okay, so Moyle was put in charge of the whole missionary program in 58. All right. As a member Dyer. of the first presidency. As a member of the first presidency. Okay, Alvin R. Dyer, D-Y-E-R, okay? Now, he was a heating and air conditioning businessman um, in Salt Lake. He was in the Central Mates Mission States. He was in the Central States Mission, and then he was sent to the European Mission. Okay. Now, I have what he, why he is interesting is that what he, the way he taught, he also again was a big force of personality, right? Mm -hmm. And he changed how the missionaries taught the gospel. So, instead of um, dogmatic teachings and long um, scriptural arguments and lectures and things. Instead, what he did was tell the um, missionaries to teach by conviction, right? And right, with bear... the idea that what you need to be converted is not the same amount of knowledge someone who spent 20 years growing up in the church gaining. Like, what did I, did I express that correct grammatically? What someone <laughs> who grew up in the church, what the knowledge they would have, you don't need that to be baptized. What you need is a belief that it's true. That's right. In other words, the people who are going, the people who are going to church are already going to join the church are already there. You just got to find them, right? Yeah, which definitely is the way. I'm trying to think, um, Aaron. I believe by the time you're probably six months into your mission, you've switched over to preach my gospel. Is that right? No, 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 no. Does that not happen on your mission? Not at all. I was still on the six discussions plan. Okay, so you and I had the same. Um, teachings that we or teaching program that we use yeah um, exactly well you the idea was you had these memorized discussions and you didn't I didn't have to teach them verbatim but I did teach them but the whole point of it was to bear testimony as much as possible and let the spirit help you find people who are ready to be taught right and then would join the church so press so Gordon B Hinckley um, cited him in the 1957 general conference right Pro President Hinckley says that President Dyer said, there is too much hedging in our approach. Drive to the point, be positive in presentation, but at the same time, do the job in a clear and simple way. Let's do it, he said. Yeah, you don't need that much information to be baptized, is the idea. The lessons right. that we taught, um, six lessons to determine, and they were what, maybe would take an hour? Each um, lesson would take... They can take less than that if if, yeah. if if they're going along fine and they're not worried about tithing or something. You could rip through those babies pretty quick. Yeah. Um, 
but that's not really a lot of information to base on an entire new lifestyle, an entire new world that you're joining, an entirely new community, belief and thought system. It's uh, yeah. really not that much information to... I really don't think I understood that very well was I, when I was a mission. You know, the people I taught were really changing their lives from not being a member of the church to being an active member of the church, including all the different commandments and things, going to church every week, you know, giving up coffee and tea, smoking, you know, sometimes they would have to get married first. I never had that happen. I was never successfully able to marry somebody <laughs> to get them to get baptized. I never, I was never able to do that. But, um, you know, it was a huge life change, but that's not how we approached it. We approached it saying that in the way that, um, the teachings of the church were so amazing that they would want to. And in right. all fairness, and that did happen quite a bit. It did. It did happen to you. <laughs> it did happen to me too, but like we were often taught, like you got to be teaching at least one lesson a week, which means maximum you would finish up from never having heard of us before to being uh, ready to be baptized in a month and a half. Um, that never no one ever went that fast on my mission. Um, I only taught a handful of six discussions on my mission. Um, and often to someone who had heard it two or three times before over the years. Um, and so it really, I, I don't think I fully appreciated that either. And part of that is because as a missionary, you're so single-minded. Like we're essentially monks, right? We do one thing and we think about one thing and we do one thing, um, which is not how other people, the people we met were living their lives. You know, they had jobs or they had school or they had, they had other stuff going on. They could not be as single-minded as we were and moving at the pace that seemed completely reasonable to us um, as single-minded 20 year olds is, you know, maybe a little unfair for most people. <laughs> um, so that was, that was um, Alvin Dyer. Okay. In and the last number three, character number three, T bowering woodbury right so he was in manufacturing and he was called to the brit to the british mission all right so here's a quote from his son so my father was a very flamboyant man in his dress and in the way he handled himself i know that elder stephen l richards told him that he'd have to be subdued because the british people were very conservative and they were poor at that point we were only a decade after the war he indicated that my mother should dress quite conservatively and so on. My dad just smiled and told me he totally disregarded that. He was going to do the way, do things the way he wanted to do them. And there was an air of independency that I think was enormously important, right? So he, the, the you know, the England mission, in, this was shortly after the war. This is a decade after the war, right? World War II. The, you know, the economy was still recovering and he just kind of swept into there, right? He had this, Someone's another person said one of his missionaries said there is an air of royalty about the Woodbury family, right? Yeah. Again, a cyclone, right? Huge yeah. So you had personality. Moyle and Woodbury, who are these huge personalities, very charismatic, uh, men who radiate power and wealth and good uh, feeling and charm. Um, and Woodbury's place with a glamorous family accompanying him wherever he goes. Uh, you have Dyer, who is saying, hey, let's strip this down to its basics, and if people feel something, let's baptize them. And, and those are the people leading this push to reimagine how we can do missionary work. Listen to this quote. Woodbury wasn't just another mission president. This is from one of his missionaries. 
He was bigger than life and an absolute spellbinder. Awe-inspired loyalty to the man and his ideas left little room for conjecture or debate. This is especially true within the context of what was purported to be the purest of all endeavors, bringing souls to Christ. I don't know if okay. you'd agree with this, Aaron. Uh, yeah. I haven't really thought about this before until you reread that quotation to me. Yeah. Um, I had two mission presents. Um, my first one went home when I was about almost a year into my mission and replaced by a second. On schedule. And, these things happen. Right. Every three years, they get swapped out these days. Um, and the first one, I remember my, my first companion was a zone leader, and so we would go to various meetings, and, and, uh, and I saw how the older missionaries hung out with President Hurd and how much they admired him and looked up to him and adulated him. And then President Leishman came in, and I got to work very closely with President Leishman through a couple different uh, assignments I had on my mission and grew to really love and admire him. And, of course, part of it was that these were good human beings, and I'm trying to be a good human being, and we're engaged in the same work, and this is my leader. You know, it's not that surprising. But on the other hand, um, I think part of it is this, that when you're young and you're figuring out your way in the world, um, it's natural to be drawn to a leader, right? And, and to want to emulate them and grow from them. It, um, it was in a very real way my first time away from home, my first year of college, I'd lived at home. And uh, it, it made sense that I needed some sort of figure to look up to. Uh, there was it certainly a void was in my life. stabilizing. Yeah. As I wasn't ready to alpha male myself yet, but I was, I was looking for role models on some level, whether I was consciously aware of that or not. And that's probably pretty typical. So these powerful men, they came in, right? And they kind of reshaped the mission program in Europe and, and Britain. So, um, and I agree with your assessment completely about my own mission president, right? I love the man. And um, he was such a force of good in my life. And it's hard to overstate how good these people are, right? What we're going to describe over next is how badly things went wrong. Yes, how good <laughs> intentions can sometimes pave the road to hell, so to speak. Yeah, and we're going to describe how much how bad the things were and the things were, and then how we learned lessons about it, and maybe talk about what we can learn. But um, but the people involved, you know, they were all good. They just started creating the wrong incentives. Okay. Well, this is um, this is the problem with saying like success in one realm is will necessarily lead to success in another. These men were powerful industrialists. They were men of business. They were men of capitalism. They were men of the corridors of American power, which is money, right? And um, they used a lot of the tools that they used in the business world with missionaries. What happened was that, as you say, um, these were businessmen, right? And they brought business principles to it. And they, I don't think they even realized what they were doing. But they started, but they really, they were so excited about baptisms, right? And the fact that the number of baptisms was increasing dramatically. Remember we said last time that the, you know, President McKay oversaw one of the biggest expansions in church membership over the course of its history. And it became from a local Utah thing to a worldwide thing, right? And this is part of it. Right, and this is, um, 
this is a really easy mistake to make, right? Like baptism sounds like the goal, but is it, right? I mean, <laughs> in, in education, we have this, right? Like um, education, the purpose is supposed to be learning or, you know, preparing for life to become an adult, but we need ways to measure that. And so then you have things like tests and then you have the SAT and you have a, an enormous industry to help kids pass the SAT, but passing the SAT was never the point right? It was just supposed to be a measure of how much kids have learned and, and um, things like, like a test can become the point when it really isn't supposed to be. Um, and baptisms became that for them, right? The real point is conversion. The real point is bringing people to Christ and, and baptism is a symbol for that. But when you focus too much on the symbol of the success of learning or the symbol of the success of conversion, um, you can end up having... Um, celebrity moms pay someone else to take their kids SAT test. Yeah. So, I mean, it's exactly right. People respond to incentives. That's a very important quote, okay? And I don't know where I heard it, but it's vital. People respond to incentives. Um, when, if, you're, if you're designing a board game, you have to realize where you put the incentives, people are going to respond to them. So the same thing in your job. If you make an incentive to become the employee of the week, people respond to it because people respond to incentives. All right? Yes, and if so, you become a mission president, Aaron, yeah. I feel confident that you will try to gamify missionary work. You'll yeah, make sure you is, get those incentives right. Yeah, it kind of does. Okay, so 1960 was a banner year for the British mission, right? One of they organized um, a stake for, you know, in Europe. Very exciting. They're very exciting. If, and you're, if you're unfamiliar with stakes, they're they're an administrative unit, but they're a very big symbol that the church is now established. It means there are enough um, members who have really been there for a while to um, be prepared to run things themselves, to govern themselves. Right. This is no longer there's no longer people coming from America to run the church. Like the British run themselves now with the establishment of the state. So Woodbury built on this success. And he decided that the British mission would achieve 500 baptisms in the months of July and August, and that the North British mission would contribute a like number of baptisms, and that these thousand baptisms would be a tribute to President David O. McKay. And we would cable him on his birthday, the 8th of September, when he will be 87 years old, that we had reached our goal of a thousand baptisms as a tribute to him, our great prophet. Yes. Right? Happy birthday, we would not... souls. Right, exactly. Um, and they put together a system of, of referrals to make this happen. Instead of tracting, they were trying to work with the members. So this is all very noble and very laudable, right? Yes. But what happened is that that goal kind of spread, right? And they start, you know, they made it. They exceeded their goal. President McKay was really happy and said so, right? Right. So not to be outdone, <laughs> some other, you know, they kept trying to do it. They tried to break their former record and they succeeded at doing it. In 1960 and 1961, they kept getting more and more gains. Their number of baptisms went up and up and up, right? But then, and like these are big gains. We're talking like 300%, 235%, 325%. These are for like the, the Central American mission, the North German mission, like the Netherlands, the Netherlands mission. So these had big gains in the terms of the number of baptisms. Um, through these different programs that they were doing, right? Through yes. Alvin Duncan's approach, through um, changing how they got, they just changed a bunch of stuff. And they got really excited by it. 
And then in 61 and 62 and 63, it tanked. The baptisms just went down to essentially what it was. And the missionary program was in a lot of trouble. Aaron, you're familiar with math. I, I am. How many times can you raise volume 300% before you run out of humans on the planet? <laughs> That's really true. <laughs> so we talked about um, correlation last time, and this was part of the growing pains. A lot of these baptisms um, were, were like real converts that made the church stronger, right? Yes, especially and, in the uh, early years of that, of that boom. It seems like the percentages were actually pretty decent considering. Okay, but a lot of it wasn't, and the, everything really tailed off. And um, so <laughs> what happened? So at this again, okay, so now let's return to the topic of incentives. There were... They started to offer incentives to the missionaries, not financial incentives, you know, but they no. were trips. They were, they were temporal things. Right. Um, they started to put in quotas for baptisms to fulfill. Right. Um, and this is the, this goes back to your industrial statement in his diary, Woodbury justified this. And he said the use of incentives in every aspect of life of life, is become almost a universal law. We have the incentives of bonus wages for more productive production industry, attractive commissions to spur pea salesmen onto greater sales, <laughs> and the incentive present in every field of greater position for hard work. In the Lord's plan too, there are great incentives. We are promised a place in the celestial kingdom of glory to dwell with our father in heaven himself in return for a life of righteousness, serving him and complying with his commandments. And more specifically in the Lord's plan, there are incentives in his missionary program, right? So he was justifying offering incentives. What kind of incentives? Well, there's a, another great quote here. I'm going to, I feel like I'm reading a lot of the chapter and um, it's because it's so good. So like I said, I just, it was a real page turner for me. <laughs> they started to offer these incentives like going to a conference if you got enough baptisms. And this started to push some harder and some a little bit, right? And some people got pushed too hard. Well, and it also simultaneously, like this getting pushed too hard thing, I, I think you're going to talk about the people who started breaking down, but it also pushed people too hard and that sort of the ethical boundaries of what was appropriate for missionary work started breaking down for other people who just wanted to win. That's right. Okay, so listen to this. Franklin Murdoch, a longtime employee of the missionary department, noted the poignancy of this kind of treatment. When we took the singing mothers over to the dedication of Hyde Park Chapel, President Woodbury was there. I had seen a lot of the missionaries standing outside of the chapel and there was brother David Skousen from my old ward. And I said, David, let's go in and sit up to the front so we can hear better. I was a stake president then. He said, I'm sorry, President Murdoch. I'm not allowed to go in there. You're not, why? He said, I only got two baptisms this month. You have to have 10 to be able to have a seat in this conference. And I could see David way back there outside. And I said, oh, I don't like this. <laughs> yeah. It, I found an article. I just did a, I found an article. Okay. Um, we're going to link, put it, put a link to it in the show notes. It's by, um, it's by, on by common consent. It's by Angela C. And it's called Whence the Early Baptismal Challenges. And um, what Angela does is describe some of these some of these um, methods by Dyer, right? 
by Brother Dyer. Yeah. One of the things she realizes is that coffee was for closers. Have you ever heard that phrase no. before? Oh, no, I have not heard that. It's not That's from the Wolf. Glengarry Glenn Ross. It's from the, it's, it, oh, it's from Glengarry Ross, right? Oh, is it really? And, uh-huh. Oh, okay. It's either that or it's from <laughs> the Wolves of Wall Street, one of the two. But it's the one it's, with um, Alec Baldwin. Yeah, that's that's the older one. That's Glengarry Glenn Ross. Right. Coffee is for closers, right? It's that fa- that's a famous quote. Oh, I and think it, that scene was in Barry, the HBO show, as I recall. I think that... Anyway, okay, coffee's for closers. Go on. <laughs> Haven't seen <laughs> the movie. Words. I actually just added that movie to my Canopy watch list. It just That movie just showed up on Canopy and have not seen it yet. There, there you go. In other words, um, you know, you got to be, you, if you want to go to this conference, you got to be baptism, baptizing. Um, Dyer kept the pot boiling, again, a quote. And the message that came across to various missionaries was, if you're not baptizing, there is something wrong with you. Okay. Um, right. So someone else quoted an LDS psychiatrist who estimated that 10% of the missionaries in Europe, because of the pressure, were suffering fairly serious psychological problems. Um, Being a missionary was really hard. It was really stressful. Um, It was really rewarding, but it was at the same time, you know, I worried really a lot about if I was doing the right things, and if I was trying to, um, you know, if, I, if, if the people I was teaching would, would progress, you know, and it was, but I didn't, I'm happy to say I didn't have this kind of pressure on quotas because I can totally see how these guys were, 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 were suffering. And while I like to think I wouldn't have done what happened next, a lot of missionaries did, they started to cheat. Yeah, I don't recall, I, did, I was not aware of any cheating in my mission, but there were some um, not quite correct the motivations in, in our mission. For instance, um, there is a quotation attributed to Ezra Taft Benson. I don't know if it is sourceable, but every Book of Mormon place leads to a conversion. And in Korea, where it's so difficult to teach people, let alone baptize people, we definitely took on giving away Book of Mormons as the point of the job. And giving away large numbers of Book of Mormons was definitely the main point of my job for some parts of my mission. And there was a series of books, and I'm realizing now as we're talking that probably the author of these books would have been a missionary at the time um, Moyle Dyer and Woodbury were were doing their magic, and possibly that's not a coincidence. Um, I can't remember his name. I, I, I cannot remember the names of the books, but they were popular among some of the missionaries, especially the older missionaries when I, when I went out. And it was this idea of a covenant method. Have you heard of this? Yeah, this is one of uh, uh, Dyer's, oh, it's one, one of the phrases associated with Dyer. Yeah, so in this fellow's book... Maybe I'm wrong, but anyway, go ahead. In, in this fellow's books, the idea is you make a promise to God, right? You say, um, Father, um, I am going to find three people to teach today. And then you, you know, you obey the rules and you're a good person and you go out and you just trust it's going to happen and you force God's hand. You, you set the terms of the covenant and you go yeah. out and you don't go home until you've taught those three lessons because you're doing the right thing and you've told God what the deal is and he's going to keep up his bargain because that's the way God works. Uh, which is, but that's not how covenants work. Like we don't dictate the it's terms backwards. of covenants to God. 
Um, That's right. But this book was very popular, and I didn't have the tools as a 19-year-old to explain what was wrong with it, but as soon as I heard about this, I felt something was, was wrong with it. And around the time that the, the presidency swapped, um, the, uh, I don't recall if, if we had a 70 come to the mission or if this was delivered through the, through the mission president, but these books were directly condemned, and this method was knocked down as being wrong. Um, to the missionaries and it was leading to this sort of thing where like um you made this deal with god and then if you didn't get your three lessons that day it meant there's something wrong with you you were insufficiently right, righteous and i definitely mm -hmm. saw that sort of stress um showing up in in missionaries when i was first there the thing it's hard to overstate that i really don't think that this was the intention of the leaders right but they put the wrong incentives in place and people respond to incentives Yes, right. and if you're told that it comes down to your adequacy as a servant of God and you fail, then it is your inadequacy as a, as a servant of God that is to blame. I remember one particular point in my mission. We had a stake president or a, someone visiting our zone. Someone asked the direct pre the question, you know, in Alma or whatever, you see these missionaries, Ammon, who baptized thousands upon thousands of um, Lamanites. Yes. You know, how come we're not achieving that level of success? Right. And his response came was describing Ammon. Right. Ammon was this amazing person who prayed and fasted and worked really hard and dedicated his life to it. And I don't think he realized what he had done when he said that, because what he essentially said was that we're not as good as Ammon. Right. <laughs> that he had worked harder and therefore got this reward, right, which is again an incentive of these converts. And I'm happy to say that at the time I, I recognized this, and I didn't, I realized, and again, this wasn't my mission presidency that, that said this. This was just some random um, other, other person. And um, so I didn't feel this kind of pressure. I didn't feel, instead, I feel like what I had gotten was a lot of the learnings, but I still had goals, right, of people to teach. But what I didn't have, what I happily didn't have was um, the yellow sheet. So in this article, uh, again, by Angela, she describes the, uh, 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 what she called the, the yellow sheet, which was the newsletter. And it talked about the missionaries who were baptizing, you know, and it put how many baptisms they had. And if you hadn't baptized in a month, you would fall off it. Right. Yeah. And that sounds like, right. That sounds like how Jesus would organize his missionary work. It's like pitting people <laughs> against each other. Right. And it was definitely competition. How, and so we didn't have that in our in our mission. I think that they had learned that um, this, or at least my mission president realized this wasn't a good way to do it. Okay, but at the time in the 50s and 60s, the missionaries started cheating and they didn't really realize what they were doing at first. And now it's time to talk about baseball. Hey, I talk about baseball all the time. Um, yeah, you're a big fan. I, I do, I love the sport of baseball and let me tell you why. And this is something I talk about in, um, my English classes when we read Fences by August Wilson, which is a terrific play uh, made into a good movie three or four years ago starring Denzel Washington. 
directed by him also. Um, but baseball is a really important metaphor in or a symbol in that in that play, and it makes sense. Like baseball is fundamentally different from other sports. Um, most sports, uh, you your footballs, your basketballs, your soccer's, your hockey, whatever. Um, most team sports are a clear metaphor for war, right? Like you're trying to conquer enemy territory, you're pushing into enemy territory, trying to accomplish some task in enemy territory. That is how most sports function, right? And this, this is actually true of, of other sports too, like consider tennis, you're, you're just sending missiles into enemy territory. <laughs> um, most sports, the proper metaphor for them is war. You are trying to conquer and destroy. That's what you do. But baseball is not like that. Uh, baseball is different in some very surface ways. Like in most sports, it's the team on offense that holds the ball, and baseball is the team on defense. But ultimately, the story baseball tells is different. If most, if most sports are the Iliad, or the conquering of you know the the war between the Greeks and the Trojans, um, baseball is the Odyssey. You start at home, and you set off on a journey, and you and your friends might sacrifice themselves to move you along in that journey. And if everything goes well, you get to come home again. It's a quest story. And I think that's why there are more good baseball movies than good football movies, because the story of the quest is just inherently more satisfying, I think, to us as people. Like, like war stories definitely have their place, but the story of leaving home and coming back again really speaks to us in a different way. And I think... Um, Subconsciously, therefore, like baseball makes sense. They didn't teach football to these kids; they taught baseball. And I think, I think there's a certain beauty to the metaphor of baseball. Um, but the way this story is going to go, <laughs> these yeah. uh, these guys used baseball to convert a bunch of children without their parents' consent. Yes, and this is the story I heard about on my mission in my last area a month or so before I came home. Uh, we were invited to go play baseball with the youth, and a lot of their friends were going to be coming. And I heard from someone, I don't remember from who, I, I was a senior companion, I don't think it was my, my um, other companion, uh, my, my junior companion, I don't think it was the other two missionaries who lived with us. So I guess it must have been some members. I, I don't really remember where the story came from, but somebody told me this story that we're going to talk about now as if it had happened in our mission in the past. And I was like, that is, that's not good. Don't worry, we're not going to do that. Um, and we, so at, at this at that point, it had become a parable. Yes, right. right. And it had become an Aesop it, tale. It, it, it had happened in every land of the world, and it was a cautionary tale that bubbled up from below the you know it it's like it's archetypal it's union. How uh, this story just bubbled up when it needed to be told, even though our plan was not to go there and then do what these missionaries did. Our plan was just to go there and out with the youth and, and maybe meet some people who might be interested in being taught it was not as mercenary as the story you are about to tell. The genesis of baseball baptisms was described by one of the missionaries who saw it happen. In the first summer of my mission, I witnessed the birth of the baseball program. There was no formal unveiling, fanfare, or hype. It was not credited by its creator as having been inspired. Neither did it come from the active minds of Woodbury, President Moyle, or any other LDS leader its roots were in pragmatism and desperation. What this missionary describes is that these guys, these kids, these again, these missionaries, right, were under a lot of pressure to get quotas. And one of them um, just wrote home for a, a, a baseball and a bat, right, a softball and a yeah. bat, and just went out and started playing on a field. And a lot of the local kids were like, oh, what's this? Because remember, they're in Britain, right? 
in the 50s. I guess they didn't have American baseball then. I guess it's just baseball, right? We don't have to say American well, baseball. It's the, the genesis of baseball is a little more complicated than that. Um, uh, like <laughs> Jane Austen talks about playing baseball before there's any record of it happening in America. By the way, Aaron, did you know um, we do have records of Joseph Smith playing baseball? Uh, now that's, that's, you know, an American religion, an American yeah. sport. It is, it, it is, it's so, it might be appropriate to call it Latter-day Saint baseball rather than American baseball. <laughs> so, okay. But and the, anyway, the local kids loved it. They flocked to, to them. They all learned it. And the missionaries, they realized, oh, this is great. We should get the names and numbers of their parents. So they went and they talked to the parents and they baptized a bunch of families and it was great. It worked exactly as the church might've hoped, bringing families into the church who, um, yeah. On its surface, the program was a masterstroke, a far more effective means of opening the doors than traditional and highly inefficient methods such as tracting and street meetings. All we did was take out a softball and a bat and start hitting the ball, and these kids just migrated right toward us. Um, so it didn't stay that way. <laughs> no, no, sadly, the story will not stay this innocent. Uh, okay. Um, uh, going, moving on. Another <laughs> quote here. Children were easy to convert. Adults were not. The temptation was, why labor with the Jones adults when the Evans kids were also ready for conversion? So, you know, would, you know, the leaders were kind of insulated from this because it was the missionaries doing it. Like they didn't learn about it until later. But yeah, they started baptizing kids, like 10 to 12 year old kids. You know, you want to play baseball? Let's come get you baptized. And then, you know, here you go. You can it's play initiation to the baseball club. Yep. That included baptism. Yes. <laughs> I couldn't believe this when I read this. I didn't, I'd never heard this story before. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, this actually happened. I, was, I read it and I had heard of it. Right. And I was, I was still upset because I was like, oh, that was true and it was worse than i imagined <laughs> it wasn't just something um, that happened on cheju once upon a time like this was a this got rolled out as a program that missionaries were doing all over britain and yeah these tens of thousands of people that got baptized tens of thousands that, friends right a lot of them were through this program um, and the kids had just no clue what was happening, right? Half of them didn't know they were baptized. A British member who was baptized prior to the baptism, baseball baptism era described an all too common scene. One Wednesday, we went to the MIA, which is the mutual improvement, you know, the youth organization. We walked in and there were about 50 or 60 boys and girls there. It was just a shock to us that the parent at that particular time, there are boys and girls everywhere. Half of them didn't know that they were baptized. Right. And she says she talked to a young girl, you know, and asked her about it. Right. Um, and she had no memory. All, all she remembered was something about tea and coffee. <laughs> yeah, I suspect something similar happened in Korea in the 80s, not not to this scale, um, but seeking out people who were baptized the decade or so before my mission. And I was always mystified, like, how can you not remember getting baptized? But then I read this story and I realized like oh well maybe there was something like this happening there's one time when I lived in Qinghe that uh, my companion and I were out in um, the city square which sounds very European it didn't look like that but but I think city square is a fair description of this part of town and <laughs> and somebody came up to us like oh hey missionaries yeah 
hey, how's it going? You guys still doing those parties every weekend? And we were like, <laughs> what? We had not heard about this. Uh, no, we are not. And he's like, oh, that's too bad. Um, and it, 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 at the time, I assumed, oh, these were some um, Edon missionaries. Edon is, is a Korean word, which essentially means heretic. Um, uh-huh. But um, but maybe it was it was their proselytory method, like, hey, come over, you know, we'll hang out, we'll party, um, tomorrow we'll meet us at the church. You know, there, there were enough people baptized during a certain stretch in Korea that I wonder if the echoes of these programs inspired some things that happened. I don't know this. I'm speculating. And anybody who served their mission in Korea in 1985 who feels very offended by this, please let us know how wrong I am. But, <laughs> but there were some, I, I suspect there were, and maybe there always have been and always will be some companionships who get caught up in this sort of thing and, and baptize people who really shouldn't be baptized and maybe not even, are not even aware they're being baptized. And these, these so-called converts are sprinkled all throughout the church. And this is, may I say, a stain upon the missionary program Oh yeah, because that's not what we're about. This was a big problem. Okay, the like I said, the number of baptisms tanked in the sixty-two to sixty-one, sixty-two, sixty-three, right? And President McKay went out to go see what was happening, right? And it took him a while to become convinced. So it goes through several pages of examining the evidence as to what President McKay actually knew about what was going on, right? And how he came to understand that something truly bad was happening. Um, and uh, he talks about a trip to England and he landed, you know, and the very first press person asked him, right, immediately, do you know about it? So here it is. Upon arriving in Prestwick, Scotland, late in February, McKay was immediately confronted by the press. One newspaper man asked if it is true that missionaries are baptizing young people into the church without the consent of their parents. President McKay replied that the thought that he thought this was not true and that it is contrary to instructions given to missionaries to baptize children only with the consent of their parents. Yes, okay. he was a man of this is, faith in yeah. the program that kids right. are going to do what they're told. Look, the, let's be clear. This was completely against the policy of the church. Yes. The policy of the church was everybody who is baptized that is young has to be have the consent of the parents. And nowadays, for a child to be baptized into the church without their parents is actually quite difficult. Yeah. So um, the missionaries were highly incentivized to build up these numbers, and the pressure was heavy, and um, corners began to be cut, and President McKay is in for a surprise. He finds out, and eventually he becomes to really realize it. And so in 1963, he made three personnel changes that signaled the end of the baseball baptism era. He replaced President Dyer, right? Um, all the pressure immediately evaporated. <laughs> and then he replaced um, uh, Moyle as chair of the missionary committee with Joseph Fielding Smith. And essentially, um, President Moyle died having no missionary responsibilities at all. And he was very sad about it, actually. Yeah. And then um, I think Woodbury, too, got replaced. But essentially, they came in, the new people came in, and it says the tide of bogus baptisms abated. And they really just, all the new people realized what had happened, and they worked really hard to fix it. And part of that fixing was large-scale purges of the roles. Yeah. They went out to go find the kids, and 
the one, you know, this wasn't official policy, but a lot of the mission presidents went out and they just found all these kids and just struck them, struck them right off the rolls. Which, they talked to him first, but then. Yeah, President McKay was not super keen on this. Um, and, and it makes sense from a theological standpoint. Um, if you are baptized, you have entered in on the straight and narrow path to heaven. You have made a covenant with God. Um, but I think it was the right thing to do to strike them from the rules. Like an 11 year old who doesn't know he's made a covenant with God, I would argue has not made a covenant with God. And any record that says that he has is inherently flawed. I remember when I joined the, my mission and I was given a little white handbook that we yes. affectionately termed the white, the white Bible. Yes. I'm familiar right? with that book. And, um, the, in this, and I was, we read it and we read, and it talked, it was all the rules of the mission included things like hair. It was specific. It, it included things like haircuts, you know, no dating, hey, avoid swimming, you want to call that back? kind of stuff. You huh? want to call back real fast? Aaron is, um, short haircut right because it is right or is it right because we've been instructed that it is right <laughs> that's right <laughs> your hair is not short oh my gosh no i think i think my hair is the longest <laughs> it's been since a, a brief period in my junior year of high school so. oh it's, it's starting to be rangy yeah <laughs> like in a, it, like ranger yeah it, it, it <laughs> goes know? places Reminiscent of Aragorn. <laughs> That's that is a fine <laughs> thing to be reminiscent of. I will. I'll ask my wife. <laughs> so I got this book, and I remember what I was told was that every line in this manual is written in sadness. Oh, that's such a good line because I mean that's the assumption, uh -huh. right? Every rule in there is because somebody did something stupid, right? And so here, what we're reading about today is one of the just stupid things that happened. And as I said at the beginning of our show. This the echoes of this rang throughout the future, and I saw I can now look back at my mission, I can see the reverberations. Like my mission, we had goals, same, we did not have quotas, they were very emphatic <laughs> <laughs> that we did not have quotas, right? We had goals, and our goals were things like how many people did you contact, how many lessons did you teach, and yes, we had goals for converts, right? But we were careful not to we were careful to try to teach you know the lessons by the by the spirit i think it was effective now i'm going to talk a bit later here about that it still wasn't right yet <laughs> but it was better yeah there was a definite transition on my mission and i suspect this is related to the change in leadership though i don't know that for certain but early on there was a tendency among many missionaries um I never lived in a house with just me and my companion. There were always other companionship there. So I was able to observe missionaries. Um, and there was a tendency earlier on my mission for people to set unrealistic goals because it showed a lack of faith not to set unrealistic goals. Um, and there, that changed over the course of my mission to where we were really trying to describe what we thought was the best we could do, um, which was much healthier and much more happy making than that earlier sense that if you're not setting an impossible goal, you lack faith. You know, I really think that there was a change in, maybe I'm wrong about this, in how missionary work was approached for the full-time missionaries, where it became less about the work they were doing and more about the training of the missionaries themselves, you know, the well-being of them, the, like the, when I went to zone conference, yeah, we learned something about how to teach better, 
but a lot of the times it was spent on just making sure you're being healthy, just taking, you know, learning about the gospel itself, right? And as it kind of, I, I just think, just based on what I'm reading here, the emphasis changed. I oh. think this is part of the reason that we dropped the mission age, right? Um, and let more sisters serve missions because I think the church is better for more women having served missions. I think the generation 15 years younger than us is going to be a much stronger generation because of that. Um, so I, th I think there's a lot to what you say there. Although I should warn our audience that we, Aaron and I are different, or, or excuse me, are aware of the difference between anecdote and data. And when we talk about our own missions, we are perfectly aware that we are dealing in anecdote. Um, in fact, nobody now, nobody knows the right way to do missionary work. So we said that earlier, right? Um, the last page of this chapter is a discussion about whether or not these excesses were positive or negative for the church 20 or 30 years later, right? Yes. In other words, is it better to baptize more and retain less, right? Or is it better to baptize less and retain more? What is more effective at bringing souls to Christ? And I don't think anybody knows the answer. If you baptized a thousand people, but only 10 of them save to stay active, right? Mm -hmm. That's the same as baptizing 10 people that all of them stay active. It, right? in, <laughs> depending on how you measure it, absolutely, yes. Yeah, so which is a better approach? And I think certainly these methods that we described earlier with baseball was the wrong way to do it. Right? Sure, but I mean, one of the problems contrary, is that you know, if you baptize 10 people and all of them stay active, then, then maybe you should have tried harder. Baptize two more people, right? Maybe they would have stayed active yeah. too, or maybe they would have been the first two of the other 990. There's no way to know, right? There's no way to know while you're doing it. You can look at the numbers after the fact, but in the moment, all you can do is the best you can do. Um, it's so different, right? So again, going back to this by common consent article with Angela C, right? She says, I'm not sure anyone actually taught all six discussions at the time in 10 minutes, but we also didn't do them over a period of six weeks. When my parents went through the discussions, there were 52 weekly discussions before baptism. We were teaching all the six discussions in one to two weeks usually. And sometimes we taught, we taught three to six after baptism. And she has wow. tons of dire quotes where, in her thing. Where, right? where did she serve her mission? Did you tell me that already? Oh, I'm not sure. I actually, I actually noticed. Um, but what I'm trying to say, um, 52 weeks seems like a 52 weeks of lessons before you get baptized does seem like a lot to me. It does show a lot of commitment, but you're definitely not going to capture everyone that you might have captured. That's right? probably not the right verb. But <laughs> <laughs> Two weeks seems too fast to me. Uh, I totally agree. And we were not allowed to go that fast. We were encouraged to go as fast as we could. And, you know, we were encouraged in the second lesson to, well, in the MTC, we were encouraged to go for a baptismal commitment in the second lesson, though that, that cooled down a little bit once we got in the field because uh, that was nonsense, um, at least for the people we were, we were serving with. So this book was written in 2005 or six or four or something. We have so much data from 50 years, so in the 50 years since um, 70 years, 70 years. Time flies. Um, I'm hoping 
that are, and I'm, I think that missionary, I'm hoping that missionary work nowadays is more data-driven. I really like the current missionary program with this emphasis on feeding this, feeling the spirit and working with people. And it wouldn't surprise me if that comes from these sad experiences. Yes, if you consider the age of the top leadership in the church right now, and when you consider that 1960 was 60 years ago, um, this is around the time they would have been serving missions or shortly before they would have served a mission. So these are stories that probably affected their younger years. That's right. Um, I, uh, okay, what else you got? On oh, subject? boy, I wasn't expecting just a, just a totally open-ended question. Um, <laughs> I could tell you more about the house in Qinghe that we lived in. Yeah. It was awesome, first of all. It was two stories. It had the most amazing wallpaper. Um, it was right on the bay, um, which was not pretty. <laughs> there were a lot of dead rats around. Um, when <laughs> President Hinckley came to Korea, uh, the day we were to hop on, on the bus and go into Busan to, to uh, attend meetings with him, there was a massive storm on the bay and lightning was striking constantly. It was one of the most beautiful and amazing things I've ever set, heard or seen. Um, the house was rumored to be haunted. Um, Excellent. And apparently when missionaries were a little Edon, they tended to experience the haunting. It made sense that it would be haunted because allegedly, and again, this is missionary talk. I don't know how accurate it is really, but allegedly the site at which we live um, was coincided with a site where the Japanese in World War II um, had camps of Korean sex slaves. Um, and oh. so there's some unpleasant history there. Uh, I don't know how true that all is, but it was a glorious house and perfect for having parties. So if it, <laughs> if it had been an okay thing to do, it would totally make sense. <laughs> By the way, friends, family, and listeners everywhere, um, mm -hmm. we're, we're going to do a 0.5 episode where you share um, stories from your missions related to the topics under discussion today about incentives and how you were motivated and and such and um send us send aaron or send face and hat or, or something set up some sort of way to collect sounds uh, and just do a, a a sort of a voicemail episode so we do have a gmail account this is a great idea i'm really excited by it if you want to reach out to us and tell us some of your incentives from your mission then you can contact us on twitter at, at face and hat or you can send us an email, faceandhat at gmail.com. We're very curious. And please identify when and where you served. Um, so we, I mean, this is still just a lot of anecdote rather than actual data, but uh, we'd love, we'd love to, um, to hear how things have percolated in and out of popularity over the years. Um, I thought I'd end on my most embarrassing okay. story. <laughs> It has taken me a long time to get over this story, Eric. <laughs> the fact, the idea that I'm going to share it, you know, <laughs> on a place that I publish to, uh, you know, to people that I love and care about, is a bit, a bit surprising. Uh, we were very excited to baptize a whole family. That is exciting. Uh, they were, uh, they were awesome, right? We had the husband, the wife, the kids, and we were just thrilled to death. This was later in my mission. I had an absolutely awesome companion at the time. And uh, what we were doing then is filling out the baptismal slips, right? 
So on the baptismal slip, you have to write out um, the name of the person being baptized, right? The, the full name, parents, you know, personal information so that we can get their official church record started. And uh, one of the children didn't have the name of the dad. Ah. I, and I didn't really understand what was happening. <laughs> oh, you sweet, innocent boy. <laughs> and so they said the name of the child and I think, and the child was sitting there, yeah. right? And I'm like, wait a minute, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, wait, are you sure that's the right name? Because you're, you know, I don't understand what's going on here. <laughs> I don't understand how they can send 19-year-olds out to do missionary works if they're so stupid. My mission companion had to get out of his chair, walk over to me, grab the, the slip and say, Elder, write that name down. <laughs> <laughs> That's the name. <laughs> oh, man alive. Okay. Um, we're a proud... Uh, member of the Dialogue Podcaster Network. Are. Please check out the rest of their podcasts. They're fantastic. Um, if you're curious, you can find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. You can find podcasts such as ours. Uh, you could go and look at Beyond the Block, um, the Mormon News Report podcast, Gospel Tangents. We have several podcasts that we um, are members of as a yes. network. We are associated with fine, fine people. And next time... What chapter oh, are we going to do? Choose a new chapter. Oh, let's look. I'm having so much fun doing this book that I don't mind um, continuing to do chapters out of it. I'm currently reading the chapter on confrontation with communism, which seems kind of relevant now with um, the election coming up the election. and the way being a member of the church and having a certain political philosophy is weirdly entwined. In fact, there's a chapter called. Uh, there's a chapter called politics. Oh, there the is. I, I have not got, that's the one after the one I'm currently reading. Okay. So why don't we do both okay. of those, 12 and 13. I will Confrontation speed up my reading. communism and politics and the church. Okay. Those sound great and highly yeah, relevant. Those, that's right, a good place for us to be at the end of October. Okay. <laughs>